Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have award-winning author and journalist, Nir Baram. He's here to talk to us about his new book, A Land Without Borders, My Journey Around East Jerusalem and the West Bank. The English translation is published this year by Text Publishing. Nia, thanks very much for joining us on New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Um, so just to start, um, would you be able to tell our listeners about how you came to write this book? Well, basically, uh, I was involved for a long time with the uh, No Peace Initiatives and the demonstration against the occupation and all the resistance to the idea of the occupation and the way Israel implemented it. But in uh, 2011, I started to feel that there is a growing gap between the idea of the two-state solution that I always believed in and what's going on on the reality, on the everyday life in the West Bank. And also, I listened to the Palestinians I met around the world, uh, mostly refugees. And I started to feel there is a growing difference between what we talk about and what they talk about. So I decided that I want to go to the West Bank and travel to the West Bank and talk to people, to regular people, not to the people you always meet in conventions and uh, stuff like this, and to listen to those stories and to try to understand what's going on on the ground. That's great. So, yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about um, what are those sort of two different narratives or two different ways of talking about um, what's happening with the occupation um, and what the that mismatch is. Well, when we talk... With the Palestinians, usually we talk about the 67 war when Israel annexed the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And then we talk about how solving, how, how can we solve this conflict by a two-state solution. And then we talk about the settlers. We will remove uh, some of them, part of them, all of them. It's impossible, of course, to, uh, to remove. And we never talk about 48, mm. which means the, independ- the independence was Israel called independence war, independence war and the Palestinian calls the Nakba. Uh, 48 came after the, the UN resolution that uh, uh, suggested two-state solution. And I think the Arab side, you can, I think it's fair to say the Arab side didn't accept it. But during the 48 war, Israel deported around uh, something around 700,000 Palestinians from the villages and their homes inside Israel right now. And these are the refugees, the Palestinian refugees that you meet in uh, Ramallah, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Chile, in the United States, in Europe, all over the world. And there is a historical difference between this conversation about 67 and 48. And I started to feel that there is no connection between these two discourses. Mm. And this is why I really wanted to talk to Palestinians and listen to their story. That's great. Yeah, so you start the book in um, the Balata refugee camp, um, which is near Nablus in the in the West Bank. Tell us about your experience here and why, why you chose to begin the book there. Because I wanted to start in a refugee camp, and Balata is one of the most uh, uh, known, and people in Israel call it dangerous refugees camp, uh, which was uh, established in 51, three years after the Nakba, and basically, people in uh, in Balata come, uh, came from 35 villages inside Israel, uh, near Tel Aviv, near Kfar Saba, near Jerusalem. And so I wanted to listen to their stories and to understand how do, how they understand the conflict. And especially while talking to children, I understood that what they are talking about 
is returning to their homes, not their homes, but their home, the home of the father or the grandmother inside Israel. That the main, main story in Balata is 48, is the Nagba. You see in every, in every house in Balata almost, you see the map that was in before 48 of, let's say, around 300 villages that are no longer exist. And you see these maps all the time and you start to understand that they are not talking about the two-state solution because for them, Balata is not a home. Mm. So yeah, you then you then in the next the next chapter you go on to visit um, a settlement and an illegal outpost, um, that, and you talk to a settler there, and he says something very telling. He says it's a it's a zero sum game. Land that isn't theirs is ours, and land that isn't ours is theirs. Tell us a bit about about this formulation and about the settlement enterprise and. What, how they how they're thinking? Well, this uh, this guy met uh, came to greatness in the last uh, two years because now he's the Israeli consul in the in New York. Right. So he, he's not a regular settler. He he's like the foreign minister of the settlers. Right. So uh, with him, it was very interesting to talk about solution because listen, um, the settlers are now in power. They are no longer the, no longer the resistance to two-state solution. They are now in power for a long time, for 10, 12 years. And I wanted to understand what's their solutions because I'm telling them, okay, so there's no two-state solution. You will, you will stay in uh, your settlers. But how can we live in a democracy? The only idea that you have is like a, an apartheid state, so you have different ideas. So I didn't came to argue with them about mm. the whole thing because this is useless and it's being done in the 80s and the 90s. I gave them an opportunity to present their solutions. Mm. And while reading their solutions, you understand that they are, uh, uh, let's say, on the spectrum of uh, ridiculous, <laughs> racist, and totally crazy. And by the way, he's the only normal settler I talk to because he has <laughs> some ideas it's not about deporting anyone, but it's about like connecting Jordan and the West Bank in some way to a one state while annexing part of the West Bank to Israel. Complicated thing. But what's interesting here is that usually the settlers were just against the two-state solution. Now the settlers feel that they have to come with solutions. Mm -hmm. And you see it all through the book, how they grapple with this feeling, trying to come out with sustainable plans that's interesting oh, so why why is that why is it why is it changed to to them needing to to put forward plans because they cannot no no longer cry about the left they they are now in power they are part of the government they are not they always perceive themselves as the resistance to the government even though that all the israeli government basically always helped them but now they came to realize that everybody tells them look you're in government you rule Israel, mm. so what, what do you want to do? Okay, no two-state solution. The left is already weak. So what's your plan? What's your vision? Why are you thanking us? So they started to think about, okay, what are we going to do? And I think it's created an interesting discourse around the settlers, which I try to convey in, in the book. Because usually people in the U.S. or the, on, on, in Europe, they never listen to the settlers. They say, the settlers are illegal, mm. and that's the end of the discussion. It's not an interesting discussion, and it's not connected to what's going on in Israel. They are part of the Israel uh, government right now. So it's important what they have to say. Yeah. So, so you then go to, to Ramallah, um, which is the sort of de facto capital of the West Bank, 
Um, and you tell you tell can you tell us a bit about the people you met there and sort of the interesting political conversations that you had there? Quite different well, that, to to, yeah. to the the, set, the settlers. Then it became there. There it became really interesting because the first guy I met uh, Jalal Romana, is an ex Hamas prisoner, uh, talks uh, marvelous Hebrew. Uh, studied uh, MA uh, while he was in jail. Uh, he was trying to bomb a car in Jerusalem. He fed. He sat in jail for 18 years. And then I talked to him, and I asked him about his solution. And he was very polite, very kind, but very brutal with his conclusion. He basically his idea is that the Jews are not connected to this land. Mm. They have no place. They have no place here. Not me. Not my son. Not uh, Shimon Peres, uh, no one. And all of the Jews have to go back to Europe or to Arab countries or to whatever. And uh, the Zionism basically uh, was a kind of a plot against the Palestinians, but also uh, created a false sense among the Jews that they are connected to the land. And it was very interesting because it was the first time I clearly understand what the Hamas wants. Well, what is ideology? Well, well, we are not talking about religious ideology. We are talking about the land. So, uh, so it was, I think, a very interesting discussion that shocked many people in Israel because usually the Israelis interview all the Hamas militants with, with guns and, uh, and hidden faces. And this guy, he wants to talk to Israelis. He wants to convince them. He wants a dialogue. But his solution is quite funny. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So you had a um, you sort of got feedback uh, about sections of the book um, from um, Israelis uh, who've read it, and have you also had um, feedback from Palestinians who who who've read the book? Yes. Yeah. Uh, basically, the the most important review in Haaretz in Israel that was published in Haaretz, which is like the Israeli New York Times, mm. was written by a Palestinian writer. Look. There is something uh, that we need to acknowledge now. The, there is a group that wants to talk only about the 67 war. It contains the Israeli left, the liberal left, mm. the European, the American, Obama, Trump, etc., etc. They want to hide 48, not to talk about 48, not to solve 48, not to recognize 48, because it's not part of the solution. They see 48 only as a threat. But for the Palestinians... 48 is essential. So I think he uh, respected the fact that I listened to hundreds of Palestinians, mm. and this is what I came, this is what I came with. Mm. Uh, but for many Israelis, even my friends, it was very difficult for them to read the book because it meant that the Palestinians are not exactly part of the discussion that they imagine that's going on. But there is no such discussion anyway. Um, so, so next you go to um, Kibbutz Nirim, um, which is um, right next to Gaza. Um, tell us about life in um, in that kibbutz. Well, life in the kibbutz are very comfortable. Basically, they're, they're living uh, close to Gaza, so sometimes rockets being fired on the kibbutz, but it's only rarely uh, now. So it's it's a very telling difference between the comfortable life of the kibbutz with the swimming pool and the houses and the really great atmosphere for children and the grass and everything there, and then between the moment of wars when the kibbutz uh, becomes like under siege. So it was inter- interesting to talk to these people and to listen to the way that they can, you know, negotiate the two so the two 
different feelings uh, around them staying in the kibbutz. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that uh, they are very uh, tired of living uh, near Gaza and suffer, and suffer all the time from these rockets. But, but under the, the economy in Israel right now, a kibbutz is one of the best places to raise a family because the economical uh, social conditions are very good. So it's a very strange situation uh, for them because they don't really want to leave the kibbutz. They don't want to go to live in Tel Aviv or in, or in uh, Kfar Saba or in other cities because they will never have such a, a social benefits like they have in the kibbutz. Uh, the next place that you visit is um, you go to East Jerusalem and you go to um, the Temple Mount. Tell us about uh, tell us about that and what role the Temple Mount still plays in in sort of the larger issue. Well, the Temple Mount basically is still the most important place when you think about the two nations. When it comes to religious, there is no no more important place. So I wanted to go there and to see how the everyday ceremonies are being handled and how people experience the religious the religious experience there and it was quite funny because you know <coughs> Jews Jews can go to the Temple Mount mm. <coughs> I'm sorry but they cannot pray there mm. now if you if you will go there and you stand and you, and you stand there in some corner and you close your eyes one cannot say that cannot say that you pray maybe you are thinking about your mother right yeah so the Palestinians and the Jordanian wakf has to guess what does it mean when a <laughs> Jewish person, person pray. So there is always a cat and mouse game between the Jews and the Palestinians and the wakf about praying. Because mm. to, to pray is a very personal ceremony, right? It's not about talking or whispering. It's about you feel that you connect with God. So it was really, really strange to see it. And it, and it really, I really understood that the only way to solve this problem is by letting anyone from every religious go to the Temple Mount and pray there. And by accepting this view, I kind of accept what the White Wing said about the Temple Mount, which is let us pray there. And I think it's logic that they, they can pray there. I think it's ridiculous that you, you, can, you try to prevent Jews from praying there and you, you try to you know, get into their consciousness and to guess when they are praying and when they are not praying. But it's very, very tense there. This is a very, very tense place. This is something that it's very scary because you can certainly envision how from this place in a very bad day, mm. something horrible can uh, come out and influence the whole uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, maybe even the whole Middle East. I think we, we won't have time to go through the rest of your book chapter by chapter, but you do an interesting thing where you go, you sort of alternate between going to settlements and um, going to East Jerusalem and Palestinian areas. Um, tell us a bit about, um, yeah, who you talked to there, what different experiences you found, um, and also that experience of going um, back and forth between these two sort of very different worlds. Well, you know, it's like, try, like in, in a way, in this journey, you're trying to immerse yourself in the geographical uh, area of the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So after a few months, you are very familiar with roads and mm. settlers, settlements and the Palestinian uh, refugee camps and cities. So, you know, in the first time I went to Ramallah, I was really scared. The tenth time in Ramallah, it was like going to Tel Aviv. Mm. Uh, 
And I really try to talk to various people from all classes, from all ideologies, settlers and Palestinians. I didn't plan every chapter. I, sometimes I just, you know, took the car and went someplace mm-hmm. and met people and talked to them. Uh, trying to, you know, to portray a, a complicated picture and really try to listen more than to argue. And this is something different, different this is something that different in this book from other books that were written by Israeli authors in the 80s, like Amos Oz. He went to argue, to convince everyone that his vision of two-state solution is the only Western rational vision. I was interested in such discussion. I, I was interested in getting into the consciousness of these people and trying to understand their logic from their point of view and challenge them from their point of view. So it created a really interesting conversation where people were very free to talk because they didn't have to defend themselves all the time. So it was like in East Jerusalem and in outposts and meeting young people in outposts and meeting Palestinians that are locked behind the separation wall. And and as they as go into the this territory, they also try to come up with solutions that will be... Uh, in the same logic of the things I understood during during the book, this is why I described the initiative uh, One Homeland, Two States, which is a grassroots Palestinian-Israeli movement that many people don't know, but uh, that try to to create a solution that will uh, take under account all the uh, ideas that I just talked about. Hmm. Well, I think it, it's uh, it's certainly a very interesting book. Um, and I guess I want to um, ask you a bit about sort of the conclusions that you um, have drawn from it and that I think are um, <coughs> perhaps controversial to some, maybe more than others. Um, and that is, in in your view, is the two-state solution in, completely uh, dead and, and or Im- impractical? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's totally dead, but unless an outside force will uh, enforce it on both sides, it will never happen. And uh, the idea of the 80s was always that this force will come someday. Mm. You know, the international community, the United States, but nobody came. So I'm very skeptical about this fact. Unless there will be some kind of force that will enforce it, it will never happen. And in 20 years from now, it will be totally impossible anyway. What do you think, will, what, what's going to happen in the, next, in the next 20 years? Nothing. <laughs> I don't see anything... Uh, I, I don't see any change in the next five, six, seven years. Uh, I think that we are going in a very clear route to understanding that this uh, land cannot be separated anymore. Mm. And then there will have to be consequences to this understanding. What does it mean? So there are two solutions. One is to live in some kind of an apartheid state where the Palestinians have no right Second is to create a one state or two state without borders or whatever. But this is, I think, the, the discourse of the next uh, 15 years after the two-state solution will be totally impossible. Uh, so we need to start talking about it. Nobody talks about it, not nobody, but many, rarely you talk about it because, for example, when I go to the United States, mm. people ask me, are you willing to talk about the two-state solution? It's like an axioma, you know. It's like a, a condition to the to the discourse. Yeah. Because they they are locked in a in a in a pattern of understanding the conflict, and they don't want to go out from this pattern because it's scary 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 for them to try to think about the next day. But we have to think about the next day. Yeah, I suppose that leads into um, 
yeah, my next question, which is uh, precisely about the impact of the book. And I suppose now you've um, had the opportunity to um, get the feedback on the, the Hebrew edition in, um, being released in Israel. And now that the English edition is out, what, what do you hope that your book uh, achieves um, sort of in, yeah, in sort of the international context? Yeah, well, well, there were always interesting editions in German and mm. and Dutch, which are uh, important because the European are uh, are very very narrow-minded when it comes to the Israel-Palestinian mm. conflict. They have only one idea. So I really understood that this book enraged many people because it kind of breaks the idea that the two-state solution is still the best solution; it's still possible, mm. and they don't want. And some people don't want to listen to it, but. Some people really read the book and 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 listen to what the what the people are talking about and try to think about the future, start to think about this question: what will happen here without the two-state solution? Do we have intellectual any intellectual ideals? Is there something beyond the two-state solution, or is it just an abyss, a dark uh, dark tunnel? And I think that it, in a way, it created some small waves that people started to think about. What's the next step after the two-state solution is no longer viable? <clears throat> and I think it's important. That's great. Well, it's certainly um, an important book, um, and um, we definitely recommend that all our listeners um, pick it up if they have any interest um, at all in this in this topic. Um, but before by, we, by the way, yeah, just one one sentence. The first thing to understand, if you have any opinion about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, or you you want to have any opinion, or you care. Just know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I think that this is the first thing of the book that it will give people understanding what they are talking about. I, I'm telling you honestly, I'm like a peace advocate in Israel. I I gave speeches in demonstration, and, and I totally understood that until I was there, I didn't mm. really understood what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's um that's a really good point, and I think it's a very sort of readable um sort of introduction to what all the different the different issues are. So. Um, I'm sure that um, it will be um, a popular one. But before, um, so we've come to the end of the interview. But before we let you go, um, I was wanting to ask you our traditional uh, last question on uh, new books in Jewish studies, and that is, what are you working on next? Well, I'm I'm writing a novel in the last uh, two years, and I had very a lot of uh, interruptions to this writing. But I'm writing a a kind of a personal novel, you can say. Uh, that I'm very close to finish. That begins with uh, a, a death, a death of a friend, and it's kind of an investigation about the death of a friend. So it's a bit different than the last two novels I published that were more uh, uh, wide-ranging when it mm. comes to plot to uh, to uh, conflict. Uh, so I, I'm very interested in this novel, and I hope I can finish it very soon. Okay, great. Well, we certainly um, hope to read it when it comes out in um, English translation. Um, so thank you very much, um, Nia, for being with us on the program. Um, thank you very much. So, so the book um, is A Land Without Borders, My Journey Around East Jerusalem and the West Bank by Nia Baram. Um, it's, the English translation is published this year by Text Publishing. Um, and you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, and I've been Max Kaiser. Thanks for listening. <laughs>